All right, all right. We're gonna get started. It's Christmas, we've already admitted that. We're telling, can I just, I just wanna say thank you to those of you here, those of you at Fenton, Mid Rivers, Grants Trail, who have helped, staff and volunteer, who helped make all of these spaces so beautiful. We just appreciate all the hard work that you've done. It looks great. We're thrilled to be here. I wanna thank all of the volunteers who helped pull off the Artisan Market, which was an amazing success on Friday. If you were here, it was a hoot. I mean, there's just hundreds and hundreds of people and, and the parking lots were full and the buildings were full and the artisans in there. Uh, we have people who are these vendors who have not just never been in our church, some of them were saying they've never been in any church. And so when I'm talking with them afterwards, like person after person after person was saying, man, you, you, your people are just so kind and so friendly. And I was like, yay. And it was just the music was in the lobby. There was a movie outside. People were huddled together with their kids under heaters and blankets and the bonfire, the fire pit was a big hit, big hit. So uh, anytime you can serve more than 700 s'mores, it was a good party. So, uh, and a special shout out to the volunteers at Fenton in our kids area that helped really cover the cool interactive stuff that was going on here with our kids. It was a great, great time. Christmas is here, but you know what? Every year at Christmas, time. There's a question that comes up. Is he real or make-believe? I mean, because there's like a whole lot that gets built around this folklore and this myth and parents even get to a place sometimes where they're like, well, if it's not true, I don't really want to take my kids down that road. Is it true or not? Is he real or not? And of course, I'm talking about Jesus. There are people who wonder if Jesus is real. Now, some of you get offended that I would even say that. I know whenever we have these kinds of conversations, there are some of you who are, I'm just gonna call you a longtime believer. Your heart's in the right place. You're following God, but you're like, oh, Greg, don't stir those thoughts up in people. You need to know those thoughts are already there. People are trying to figure this out. Let me tell you this. Some of us here today think that the Christmas story is too far-fetched to believe. There's just too much, really? Some of us think it's too far away to do us any good. And there are those of us who believe, but it's been far too long since we've actually asked the question, what can it do for me today? Like, why did this matter? Why should this still matter? And we're going to talk about those things, and I think it will matter to each of us. We're going to ask some questions today that you may not normally ask when it comes to the Christmas story. We're going to seek out answers together. We're going to have some fun. Uh, I do think this is for our friends and neighbors. You're, you're hearing that. Uh, if you're here because someone invited you, like you're in one of our sites or you're watching online, let me just say welcome. We're going to do this together now. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump in. So here we go. Father, please now, as we open your word as we go over some things that for some of us will seem familiar and for really all of us, some things that maybe we've never thought about, would you continue to fill us with awe and hope and wonder, God, please show us how to step through this Advent season in a way where at the end of it all, we are closer to you. This is what I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, now, what we're gonna do is start off with what I think is probably the most classic Christmas text there is. It's on all the Christmas cards, right? It's Luke chapter two. Let me just read these verses. 
Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. I'm not even asking for a show of hands. How many of you have heard that one? We've all heard that one. It's a classic Christmas text, yes? But questions are already rumbling if you pay attention. Did anyone notice the quotation marks? They're there. So what does that mean? Well, that means that this is a, a conversation that's happening. And if you know the context, this is an angel who is saying this. Now we've got to talk about the supernatural at some point in this series because these angels step into time and physical dimension, space that we can perceive to deliver a stunningly, stunningly encouraging message. I mean, it's just the most, it's the best news ever. So what is it? Well, here it is, and, and this sums up the Christmas story. Today in the town of David. Today. So this is, I want you to see here that there's a time and a place. This thing is wedged in history. That's the first thing. Today, a Savior has been born. A savior. Now, here's the blunt truth about the Christmas story. One of the messages of the Christmas story is you and I are in dire need of help. You see, if you read the Bible, one of the things that you will learn is that there has been a problem running deep through the story of humanity. The Bible calls it sin. It's what separates us from God and it divides us from each other and it has to be addressed. If you want to understand Christmas, it is a rescue operation to get us away from the effects of our rebellion against God. That's Christmas. And so as you see this, I want you to also notice that this Savior says here is for you. Out of all the things that we're going to talk about this, this December, and some of this, there'll be a couple of, I'm thinking of Christmas Eve, but there'll be a couple of times along the way where we're all going to go, oh, 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 wow, cool, a universe-wide thing is happening. But never forget that it is personal. This Savior is for you. If you don't hear anything else I say today, hear that. This Savior is for you. He has been promised for you. In the early pages of Scripture, when it all falls apart, God says, I will not let this be the last word. I am sending one who will ultimately defeat evil, one who will set the world to right, one who will make things right between you and God. Deeper into the Hebrew Scriptures, this one who is promised actually takes on a title. He is Messiah. Now, in some of your translations, you're used to the word uh, Christ. He is Christ the Lord. Well, Messiah and Christ are the same word. Christ is the Greek way of saying Messiah. It means anointed one. So who got anointed in those days? Kings. That's who. So part of what's going on here is that this is an announcement that this Savior is the king who is coming into the story. And if that wasn't enough, it says he will be, he is the Lord. That means that somehow this baby who is born physically into the universe, into time and space and history, is somehow God in the flesh. This is the outrageous story of Christmas. In fact, it's so outrageous that the last thing the, the shepherds hear is, uh, you need to go check this out for yourself. And you're going to find this child in the most unlikely of places, in a feeding trough. He'll be wrapped in strips of cloth, which is what all peasant babies, that's how they were cared for back then. And that's the story. Now, this isn't a shocker, but let's go on ahead and say it out loud. Jesus is at the center of the Christmas story. 
But if you keep reading, you will find that Jesus is not only at the center of Scripture, he is, but Jesus is at the center of eternity. By the time we get to the book of Revelation, we see that there are thousands upon tens of thousands. It's an innumerable number that are circled around the throne of God in a moment of worship. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth saying, to him who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, and to the Lamb, that's Jesus, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And that means by the time you get to the end of the Bible, it tells us that Jesus is at the center of it all. See what we did there? That's why we're calling this series what we're calling it, because Jesus is at the center of everything. And if that's true, that changes everything. If it's not true, well, we should probably admit that. Is it true? Let's start with this way. Is, is the historical person of Jesus, I mean, like, real, fact, or fiction? Did Jesus really live? Because if he didn't, and we bring this up from time to time, but if Jesus wasn't an historical figure, then, guys, we're wasting our time here. I don't know why we're here. I guess tradition? I don't know. Habit? What are we doing here? Why would we tell the Christmas story if it's not true, if he really didn't walk the planet? It's just another cuddly story you read to the kids before bedtime. Have a nice hot cup of cocoa and let's leave. But if it's true, that changes everything. Now, how do we know that it's true? God gave us brains to think. Y'all are about to have to think. Would you please, just tenderly, not even harshly, none of this, okay? But will you just gently put your hand on the person that you came with and say, you're going to have to think for just a minute. Go ahead, just tell them right now. Just help them right now. Help them. I know some of you, I know there's a person somewhere that's going, nope, I'm out. Okay, so here it is, here it is. How do we know that Jesus existed? There is an agnostic atheist who is a professor of religious studies at North Carolina. Don't ask me how that works. I don't know, but that's what he thinks and that's what he's a professor of. And Bart Ehrman is no friend of Christianity, has written some very controversial books, not a big fan of pretty much most of what he says, but even he has to admit this. Look at this, he says, the reality is that whatever else you may think about Jesus, he certainly did exist. And what's the hard evidence on this? This is always fun, real quickly. There are people outside of history that have mentioned Jesus. And I'm talking about way back, people that, that, that saw what was going on there. The first one is Josephus. He's a famous Jewish historian. In AD 62, uh, Josephus has a, mentions Jesus in one of his writings and even calls him the Christ. Now we get to a Roman historian by the name of Cornelius Tacitus, who in pretty much that same era writes about this Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified under the, the reign of uh, the rule of Pontius Pilate while Tiberius was the emperor of Rome. That's exactly what the scriptures say. And then you get to a Roman governor in a region. Now, we would call this place Turkey. This is the country of Turkey. But he's writing back to the emperor asking for help. How do I take care of these pesky Christians in my province? Not a nice guy. Tortured people, not a good guy. But in this long letter, he writes a pretty famous quote, and this is what he says. He says, as, as he's kind of learning what goes on, he says, they will meet before daybreak and to recite a hymn among themselves to Christ 
as though he were a god. Now, all of these are outside of Scripture, people who are saying something's going on with this Jesus character. But if you really want to know who Jesus is, first of all, I think it's reasonable for you to say that he's an ancient figure of history, just like a whole bunch of other people. It's rational for you to say he existed. But if you really want to know him, you need to study the Gospels. Those are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some of you who are really early in your journey are going, I'm not studying the Bible for the Bible to prove that the Bible can be... No, that sounds circular to me. I'm telling you, these first four books, take a look at them. In fact, there are those who will say these first four books are written... It's a genre of, of ancient literature. They are written as ancient biographies. Now, I, I keep dropping names on you so that you can fact check me on this so you don't think I'm making this up. But there are scholars like Craig Keener and, and uh, uh, Bauckham who have, uh, who have made this, this case convincingly. Richard Bauckham has really just said, no, this is an ancient biography, so you can look at it. Even Bart Ehrman, you already know what he thinks, says that if you want to know Jesus, you've got to look at the Gospels and says, this is the view of all serious historians of antiquity of every kind, from committed evangelicals, evangelical Christians to hardcore atheists. Everybody knows you've got to go to the Gospels if you want to learn who Jesus is. Now let's hit the, the pause button. I just dumped a whole bunch of history, quoted some people you'll never read, all of this stuff. You even got a map up there. We talked about the Roman Empire. You're welcome, fellas. So all of that just happened. But we should now remember why we're even doing this. We're doing this so that we can understand, is Christmas real? And does it, like, how does it apply to me? So we're at the end of the year. We're, we're in December. This is when you get your Spotify wrapped, you know, stats and everything that you're listening to, all of those things. It's when Merriam-Webster Dictionary gives us the word of the year. We'll come back to that in a second. But what I'd like for you to do now is to hang out with some people around you and tell them what your word for your year this past year. What's the word you would use for your year this past year? Might take you a second, talk to some people around you. If you use the app, would you please let us know? We'd love to kind of share this a little bit later. What's your word of the year for you? By the way, if you're new, if you're uncomfortable with this, just lean in, smile, and eavesdrop. You don't have to participate, all right? So you all talk to each other. Gonna be a lot of activity going on in this room. All right, go, talk to each other.
All right. Did you guys get some good stuff? Did you share some things with each other? Does anybody know what Merriam-Webster said the, the word of the year is this past year? Authentic. I'm not going to lie to you. When I heard that, I was like, I thought we'd already played that one out. I don't know. And then I kind of heard what the explanation was. There are artists who are worried about, you know, do you understand my authentic work and what I'm bringing to you? And then there were people who had fears about artificial intelligence and chat GPT and a bunch of stuff that we talked about in the last series. So, so I, I, I get it. People are wanting to, 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 to know that the person that they're interacting with is real, is trustworthy. Let me say this. The most consistent, the most truthful, the, the, the most pure person that you will ever encounter is Jesus. And I know some of you are going, man, you get paid to say stuff like that. Like, I don't know what to do with that. Well, I say let's keep investigating him, even in this Christmas season. And I'll now say that the best way for you to understand who Jesus is is to study these Gospels, which are, well authentic. Now, let me show you what I mean, because as soon as I say that, some of you are like, da, 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 da. What am, I don't, like, I don't, seriously? Like, Luke, let's just go back to the verses you, you, you read, Greg, and, and that whole story in Luke chapter 2. He includes all of these really cute, like, details, and this happened, and that happened. How does he know he wasn't there? That's a legitimate question. That's a question that some of you ask or should be asking. You see, as we engage this story, and one of the things that, that you're going to be uh, tempted to do is to just bail on it, right? And just go, I don't want to think about this. Just tell me about the happy baby in the manger. <laughs> I'm telling you, you want to pull this apart because then it becomes real, and then it's yours, and it's rock solid. I'll show you what I mean in a minute. But Luke is writing an ancient biography and the way you wrote an ancient biography, according to, to one expert, was either you had to be an eyewitness or you had to interview eyewitnesses. That's the only way you could do it. So now look at how he starts off his, his gospel. He says, I, there are these eyewitness accounts that have been handed down. And then this is what Luke says at the very beginning of his biography. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. You know what he's saying? I did this the right way. I investigated, I interviewed people, and I think it's very, very reasonable to expect that when he was in the region, he interviewed Mary. So he's got all the details. Matthew was one of the apostles who walked around with Jesus, so he was there. John says, I was an eyewitness. At the end of John's account, he says, I barely scratched the surface on what I saw. Look at the last verse of his, of his biography. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And then there's Mark. Mark was probably the first gospel ever written. Real early, like 35-ish years after Jesus. I mean, it's it's, it's there. Most people think that Mark was based on the memories and the stories of a guy named Peter. We know how close Peter was to Jesus. And so he's sharing these stories with Mark and Mark's writing them down. Now, I just mentioned a word that some of you are going to have a problem with. Memories. Because we're saying that these things are based on memories. And you're like, that just doesn't seem very reliable to me, Greg. 
I want you to think of the first century context. Jesus is a rabbi in the first century. A rabbi in the first century would call students, disciples, in the Hebrew Talmudim, to follow him. And when they followed him for some three years, disciples in that era did everything they could to become like their rabbi. You followed him. You went the way he went. If he took this route, you took that route. If he ate this, you ate that. If he sat down, you sat down. And they listened to everything Jesus said. In fact, they began to memorize what Jesus said. It's the job of a disciple because you're going to eventually teach others what he taught you. So you got to get it right. Jesus, even while he was alive, sent the disciples out and said, now you guys go teach what I've been teaching and let's see how it goes. It's kind of a quality assurance accountability thing going on here. And you need to know that while this is going on, uh, Jesus, I, 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 just, I just think it's reasonable to think that Jesus didn't tell these stories once. Now, you only find the parable of the prodigal son or the, the runaway son, you only find it in, in the Gospel of Luke. But I think that Jesus told these stories and these parables more than once. When you've got a good thing going, you, you want to share this with other people, and you want these guys to learn it. And so I can imagine that in the evenings when they're sitting around, like the fire, and it's just like, oh, man, that was a day. You know, he's never told that story before. So I, I just want to make sure I got it right. So there was this two sons, and the first son, like he wanted his inheritance early, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he ran away, and then he... This is a communal thing where you hold each other accountable, and you, you, you memorize this thing together like you would if you were studying for a final, except this is way more than that. Being a disciple is not trying to stay awake for a lecture Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings. You're hanging on every word, and you're doing this together. Again, it's Richard Baucom who says that when you start to look at this, in fact, look at what he says here when he talks about recall. Frequent recall is an important factor in both retaining the memory and retaining it accurately. So this idea of memorizing, we still struggle with it, don't we? Because we're not very good at it. We said that a few weeks ago. Because of the way we rely on technology, neurologically, we're getting worse at this. Tim last week said we were all a bunch of forgetful Joneses from Sesame Street. We need help in remembering. So I realize this, and I understand that we're not like the ancients, who, by the way, didn't just not have an iPhone. They didn't have a Bible. This whole culture was based on words that you spoke to one another. It was an oral culture. And in the, the Jewish culture of that day, they put a high value on memorizing. You developed, you got better and better and better at memorizing. And research today tells us that you can get better and better and better at memorizing. But there was a communal aspect to it. A couple of Christmas Eves ago, uh, before the service started, we had a couple of musicians that came out and just said, hey, let's just take a survey. Like, what songs do you guys like? What's your favorite Christmas song that we're probably not doing in the service? What do you guys want to sing? Every service they were telling me, every service. I remember this. Do you know what the song was? Just hear those sleigh bells ring-a-ling, ting, ting, ting-a-ling, too. 
Come on, it's lovely weather for a sleigh ride. Don't act like you don't know this song. Sing it with me. Sleigh ride together with you. Come on, everybody, all sides. Outside the snow is falling and friends are calling. Yoo-hoo. Come on, it's lovely weather for a sleigh ride together with you. Now let's drop down to the bridge. There's a happy feeling nothing in the world can buy. As we pass around the coffee, let's pick it up. Come, can pie. It'll nearly be like a picture print by career and Ives. These wonderful things are the things we remember all through our lives. Here comes the key change. These wonderful things are the things we remember all through our lives. Da, 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 da. So, okay, so you've got lots of questions now. The first one is, uh, like, do they let him get up there every week? <laughs> the second one is, I've never heard this song before in my life. Like, if you're of a certain age, you're like, what are you guys doing? But I watched here, and I'll bet it was the same at each of the sites. I also watched some of you remembering in community and trying to keep up. It's the pastor on the pumpkin pie. I got that one. <laughs> yeah, courier. I don't even know what courier and Ives is. I got that. So, so what is it? It's a communal thing where we remember. And what 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 Bauckham is saying is, you do this. You recall and you do it again and again and again. There's this Belgian anthropologist. You don't even need to know his name, Jan Vencina. It won't be on the test later. But he studied how oral cultures communicate things in Africa. And he said they were so meticulous in the way that they said what they said, that they passed down their histories through generations. And this would last for years and years and years. And he said it was exact, same words, same order. And he said it was about repetition, but it was about rhythm. And there's these little tricks that we use to memorize, to get our way through like a geography test or a history test. And we do this. Gang, I want you to understand it wasn't just memorizing. These were transformational moments. Like there are some, like... Y'all couldn't tell me what you had for breakfast on Thursday. But you can remember something that happened 20 years ago. In fact, you can remember the details of it so much so that if we started having a conversation, you would remember sounds, sights, colors, what somebody was wearing, taste, smell. So you won't know this, but I asked the sites, the pastors to go around and just ask people at, at, the, at the sites and say, so, so what are some of your most vivid memories um, from Fenton? A good old Southern fish fry on my aunt's farm. Uh, stopping at grandma's every day after school for ice cream. Um, somebody said I was on a plane in 9-11 in 01, okay? You remember that. Uh, baking brownies as a little girl. How about this one for mid-rivers? Me and my brother running and playing in a cornfield where the corn was high over our heads. There's a whole lot to that memory, right? Uh, a lot of these have to do with our, our grandparents, uh, birth of a child, uh, being at my grandparents' house, baking cookies at my grandparents' house. Uh, somebody said when, I was, when he proposed to me, when she said yes, the birth of this child. Sometimes it's tough. Somebody from one of the sites, I believe it was Fenton, said, uh, my wife just died. This is a memory that will now be etched 
right? I mean, you don't, if you've ever spent a time in a hospital or maybe a friend or a family member, and it was a season in the hospital, as soon as we go back to that memory, you remember what the wheel clanking on the cart sounds like? You know what it sounded like when the curtain was shut? You'll even remember smells as you walk into that hospital, where you parked, what it was like, because these are transformational moments. When we see these people in the Gospels writing this down, these are things they will never forget. John in chapter one says, this God who was there at the beginning, he made it all and then the word became flesh. And then we read, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. You know what John is saying here? I saw him and I'll never forget. I walked the earth when God walked the earth. They'll never forget this. But it wasn't just these eyewitnesses. It's the people in the stories. Go back and read the Gospels and notice how many names are mentioned. Mary Magdalene, why is she mentioned? Because she was there. She was one of the first witnesses to the resurrection. They're essentially saying, go talk to her. She knows. A beggar named Bartimaeus. A, A father named Jairus. A woman named Joanna that financially supported Jesus' ministry. These are all people who are a part of the the, the church now, so they've got stories. I'm telling you, this is rock solid. The memories are rock solid. The story is rock solid. But you've got one more question that some of you are asking. Greg, it's still a copy of a copy of a copy, and the whole thing had to have been mangled. I mean, how, how can I even trust this? We've gone over this before. Let me real quickly show you what this is. You want to get to how many manuscripts you have and how close do they get to the original. Just so you understand, out of all of ancient history, there's not an original manuscript of any book. Not a one of them. You want to get as close as you can and you want as many copies as you can so you can compare them with each other. Does that make sense? So let's say that you're talking about Plato and one of his books. Don't worry. This is, I'm just trying to give you an example here. But if we were to talk about Plato, one of his books, you would have, um, like, you can get within 1,200 years, which doesn't seem like very close, but in ancient times, that's a big thing. And there, there are like 200 copies of his work. And nobody, nobody questions that when people quote Plato, like I'm sure you and I do all the time. But when they do that, nobody goes, well, how do you know that he said that? We got 200 copies. We can compare all of this. And it's not just that. The granddaddy of them all is, is Homer's Iliad. And there are like 1,700 copies now of this ancient work. You can get back within 500 years and you lay all of the copies out there and you go, well, Wherever it's consistent, that's what we're going to trust. And you get to a place where you can believe that this is what Homer wrote. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Guys, I know it feels like a, like a history lesson, but here's the deal. You want to know what the evidence, what the manuscript evidence is for the New Testament? There are, I'm just talking about in the Greek, because the Greek is how that was written. Just in the Greek, there are over... Fifty-seven hundred manuscripts. It's unheard of. 
5,700 manuscripts, and you can get within, like some of these get within four or 500 years. Dozens of them get within 300 years. There are some of them that get into the second century. There's even one little portion of, a, of, of, of one of these manuscripts that might actually be like even earlier than that. It's unheard of. And these are just the ones that are written in Greek. If we talk about all of the other ancient languages that this was being translated in back in those days, there's an additional 15... thousand manuscripts there is no other book that has this many copies and you're like well why do you need all those copies because you lay them all out together and you get to be you like oh yeah somebody was way off here he was having a bad day we're not going with that one or yeah this is what they're all saying now are there still places in the bible that it's there's there the the manuscript the the words aren't quite secure i gotta be honest with you there are I'm thinking of the end of Mark chapter 16. I'm thinking of the end of John chapter 7 where there's a story that leaks into John chapter 8. But you go look in your Bible and find in both of those places, there'll be a little note right above that says, the oldest manuscripts do not contain this story. You want to talk about authentic. This is the Bible saying, here it is. And as far as we know, there aren't translations to help with this. So these couple of stories, you know, take them for what they're worth. Now, gang, why would we even talk about this? You see, I want you to know that the evidence here is rock solid. And you're like, I don't care about that. You, you, you have friends and family who are believing lies about Scripture that aren't, it's, it doesn't help them. See, there's one scholar that puts it like this. Tom Wright says that it needs to be stressed that our evidence for the text of the New Testament is in a completely different league than our evidence for every single other book of the ancient world. What does that mean? It means that if you read in the scriptures that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, then he more than likely said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, you still have to figure out what you're going to do with that. See, I think God wants to be known. I think God wants to be experienced. God wants to be trusted. But I'm already now making the assumption that there's a God. For some of you right now, you're not sure that there is a God. Me talking about numbers and giving you all sorts of stuff isn't going to pummel you into belief. There's nothing that's going to do that. That doesn't help. But if you're open this Advent season to the possibility that there's a God, then let me just suggest this. If there's a God who wants to be known, it makes sense to me that he would get a message to us. And it makes sense that he would get a message to us in a way that we could compare this book to every other book in history, every other so-called sacred text out there, and it would rise above all the others. It would be a book like no other, and we could begin to trust it at a different level. And this God would begin to, to, to protect and guide and get this work to us. I mean, he can do that if he's God. You see, I think that's what we see in the Gospels. God went out of his way to get a message to us. But now the question is, why? Why? Well, let's go back right here at the end and look at your answers for your word of the year. So I don't know what, let's, we're going to look and see what this is together. Oh, wow, look at you. Cool. I hope you mean growth in like a, you know, in, in, in like, in a, you know a, like a personal way sort of a growth. That's cool. Uh, but I'm seeing some of these others too. Surrender, yeah, that's a theme, chaotic. Regret, now you know this is a word cloud, so the bigger the word, the more people, busy, defeated, lonely, grief, 
anxiety. You know what I love about this is it's honest and it's, it's really all over the map. But I believe there's a God who, it, who is, is so present that he will move into every one of those seasons with you. In times of thanks, he's right there with you. In times of griefs, he's there with you. All the way through. You see, because there is a, I believe there was a baby born in Bethlehem that day. And I think this birth is like no other. So Mary and Joseph get some news about this birth and a pretty fascinating detail that they're going to be confronted with, but that's next weekend. But the angel tells both of them about this once and forever birth. And as he tells them, first he tells to Mary, tells this to Mary and says, you know, this little child of yours is going to be known as the son of the most high. When he gets to Joseph, he's more specific and says, you're going to name him, name him Jesus, which means God saves because he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew says, this is to fulfill an ancient prophecy of that, the, uh, that the virgin shall, sh shall conceive and give birth to a child, and that child's going to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, you've all heard that before. Did anybody give you permission to ask the question of, I don't, like, I don't get how those two things connect? You ever read that before? Joe, name him Jesus, which means God saves. Which, by the way, is a fulfillment of a prophecy. He'll be known as Emmanuel, which means God with us. Which is it? Jesus or Emmanuel? God saves or God with us? You know, it's okay to ask these questions. I love the way Rebecca McLaughlin answers and then asks and then answers the question. She said, they're both getting at the same thing. You see, we're so far from God. The only way he can save us, the only way he will save us is to move in close to be with us to lead us away out of this. God is up to something. Why? It's love. I know that's too squishy for some of you, but it's love. It's love. It's love. Love is at the center of this story. It's love. God wants a relationship with you. God went to all of this trouble, gives us all of this evidence, gets the word to us so that you and I could begin to discover, oh, you know what Christmas is? It's God wanting to do life with me now and forever. So I, when my daughters were younger, much younger, um, one of them came home from school. And she, uh, she had a question, and it was a very specific question. Now, this particular daughter is known for her direct communication, and you kind of know where you stand with her, and you knew where you stood with her back then, and it's like, okay. And so she came home, and, well, she had a little friend at school, first grade. His name was Jonathan, and Jonathan was trying to explain to a group of first graders uh, the intricacies of uh, reproduction. And uh, all I'm going to say is Jonathan did not get the details right. <laughs> and I'm actually pretty grateful. I would have been worried if he'd have gotten these particulars right. Uh, so, but she's got a question. So it's like she's coming to her father, and she's like, Dad, I got, I, I, you got to explain this to me. First grader. So what did I do? Did I tower above her with all of my knowledge and go, behold what I know, little one? Did I horrify and confuse and just like overshadow her with it's this and it's this and then this and look at how much I know? No, of course not. That would have been, that would not have been helpful. You agree with that? No, that's not what a loving father, I did what all loving fathers do when they get that question. I sent her to her mother. <laughs> that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. That's not true. I hung in there on this one, but I need you to know something. As I started to think it through, first grader, remember that. I'm going, what do I say to her? I mean, you don't, you don't say everything. 
Okay, so I'm going to explain this part. This part is not for now, but I'm going to meet you where you are. I love you so much. I want to honor what you're going through. And I, I here, and along the way, it's not just the information. It's you do know that mom and I love you, and we're going to be with you through this whole thing. And let's just keep talking along the way, but this will be enough for you. That's what loving fathers do. Friends, have you ever thought about how loving God must be to communicate with us the way he does? I, I, there are times I wish he was more clear. I wish he was more obvious. But I'm so grateful that God doesn't overwhelm me and continually just prove to me his greatness and say, behold, all that I am. God loves me so much that he gives me this, this, this book, this word that I can begin to explore and I can use the brain that he created me with to even figure out some evidence and go, I think I'm going to trust this. But God loves me so much, even when I rebel, even when I shun him, even when I turn away from him and break his heart, God does not tower above me and scream, look at who I am. He sends me this message through this odd, you can't even hardly imagine this fitting together story that is so tender and so real. This is how much I love you. I'm coming in close and this will not be the end. Now, will you follow me? Will you keep learning? Because along the way, I'll teach you even more. How much does God love us anyway? You see, this is all about love. Now, I'm going to ask for uh, musicians and, and, and folks to just get ready for, for, for our, our end moment here. But I have a friend at this church who, uh, by all rights, shouldn't even be alive right now. Like, uh, he shouldn't. It's a miracle. Uh, there was an accident that took place, and uh, I saw the photo. He shouldn't be here. Only by the hand of God saying, not yet. That's his story to tell. I'm not going to tell you that story. I'm going to tell you what it's like being with him after this happened. Been with him more than once. Every time I'm with him, it's the same. You see, the, the Celtic Christians would talk about a thin place. You ever heard of that? A thin place. These are places that somebody has gone through something. They've experienced something so powerful that the veil between heaven and earth is thin. They see things that the rest of us walk past. They hear things. They know what matters. First time Robin and I had coffee with, with, with Rick and Christy, we came out and she's like, man, I've never seen, I said, he's in a thin place, Rob. I have other friends that are in thin places right now. You know what I do? I listen to them. I lean in because they see and they hear things that I'm missing. Do you know what he says to me? Like, I, like every time we talk, it comes up in one level or another. Great. I just, if I can, if I did one thing for the rest of my days, it would be this. I want people to know. I want them to know how much God loves them. He, like when we talked on Thursday, he said, Greg, if I could just tell you one thing, please know how much God loves you. It's like when you get to that place where you start to see what really matters, it's like you know that you know that you know it's like, oh, it's the love of God. You want to know why Christmas is such a big deal? It's love. 
You see, if I was really going to just kind of lay it out there for you, why did we even go through all of this evidence? Was it to kind of wow somebody with, oh, look, we know it's not that. It's because we're doing everything we can to tell people about the love of God because there is this desire, there is this longing for us to be in a place where we can connect with the God of the universe. There is this longing, and I'm telling you, when you connect with him, it's the light in the darkness. It's the beacon that guides you home. It's the anchor in those really tough storms. It's the orienting North Star when you are so confused. It's love, but it's not love, it's his love. It is a love that says, I will not leave you, I will not forsake you, I will not bail out on you. It is a love that says, this is not how things are supposed to be, and I'm gonna make a way out. Will you trust me? Will you follow me? We go through all of this evidence. It's not about the evidence. It's about God saying, this is how much I love you. Will you trust me? I think Jesus really exists. I think he walked the planet. I think there's plenty of evidence that the gospels can be trusted. I think the Christmas story really happened. So God says to the shepherds, you should go check this out and see what I'm up to. He says to Mary, your little boy will be known, known as the son of the most high. He says to Joseph, name him Jesus because God saves. But it's a fulfillment of Emmanuel coming to earth because God is with us. And it's both, it's both, it's always both. And that's what changes everything. This child grows up, defeats evil, makes a way for us. That's why Christmas matters. That's a fact. That's why Christmas matters.
Cross he bore for me, for you.